Welcome to Create Your Own Light, where we harness our past, we embrace our future, and learn to conquer the roadblocks along the way together. I'm your host, Travis Howes. Let's get on with it. This episode is brought to you by YourWelder.com. YourWelder.com is an online directory of mobile welders. Whether at your home or at your industrial processing plant, we come to you. Our community of mobile welders can repair anything from the neighbor's mailbox that you just backed into or the cat bulldozer sitting on your job site. YourWelder.com is a directory of highly skilled professionals willing to help you on your job site on your timetable. YourWelder.com screens all of their welders using tools like photos from social media apps such as Instagram, Parler, and Facebook, even face-to-face meetups. YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part. They're veteran-owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I am super excited today to um, to have this episode with you because I have my dear friend Jennifer Samples as a guest today. Now, Jennifer is a police officer um, and uh, she was married to a firefighter and his name was Dustin Samples. He's a captain out of Cleveland, Tennessee Fire Department. And we are going to talk about the reality today from a spouse's point of view of post-traumatic stress, signs and symptoms, and suicide. And we're going to get into all of that today. Um, Without further ado, I want to welcome my good friend, Jennifer Samples. Jennifer, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So we're doing this, uh, we're doing this podcast over zoom and we're not using the, uh, we were both laughing cause you're at work today and I'm sitting in what looks like a haunted house. So we're not using obviously the video portion. This is only audio. Um, but Jennifer, you've been, you've been a longtime supporter of mine. Um, and you were actually supporting me before I even knew you were supporting me. And I had the, the pleasure of meeting you under unfortunate circumstances but I did have the pleasure of meeting you and, um, and we've, we've blossomed into a beautiful friendship since then. So I want to say thank you for your friendship and your support. And i just kind of want to jump right into things. And can you just kind of talk about how you discovered me and why you discovered me and then how like our, cro- our paths crossed? Sure. Um, so like you said, I was married to Dustin Samples, captain at Cleveland Fire Department, and he was diagnosed with PTSD in 2014. And throughout our relationship and marriage, just dealing with the struggles of PTSD and mental health and just jobs and everything. Um, I was looking for resources and stumbled across um, an interview. I think you did with someone heard about your book, uh, went ahead and ordered it and it was supposed to be a Christmas present and I couldn't hold on to it anymore. I gave it to my husband and said, read this. Uh, He was not a reader but he read it in a day and he really, I think, connected with the book and the things you had to say. And, and you obviously not knowing you, but just, he felt like he shared stories so much with you. Um, and that's kind of how I came to know you. And that was even before the podcast days, I believe. And, and you know, what's crazy, Jennifer is that um, you say you gave your, your book to your husband and I didn't, I didn't know either one of you at the time. And I was on, Facebook live one night and, uh, a gentleman from your, um, your husband's department. I didn't even know he was following me. He reached out and said, you know, he wanted to go live with me while I was already live. And I was like, yeah, we'll do it. So he, 
he puts his headphones in and we're talking and then he drops this bombshell on me. And I've talked about this in uh, previous episodes about, about Dustin, your husband. And, uh, I was talking with, with Rob, he's become a good friend of mine now. And he, he said, you know, I had a friend of mine here in Cleveland fire department who took his own life. And, uh, you know, before he did, he read your book and he reached out to me. And then we went to, um, we went to Maryland and, and we, we got help at the center of excellence, um, through the, uh, international association of firefighters. And my heart stopped. I was like, Oh my goodness. My, he read my book and he, and he still ended up taking his life. And I, I felt like I failed your husband. And, uh, we, we talked, I talked about that in an episode and I never met him, but w- what I think happens is we get so far gone that a lot of times there's really nothing else we can do because we don't keep up with the continued maintenance of ourselves. And we let, we know we have to work on certain things here and there, but we, I'm not saying we get lazy, but life gets in the way and we start putting those things on the back burner. And if we don't keep those tools that are in place for us to take care of ourselves on the front burner, this can be unfortunately the circumstance like it was with Dustin. Absolutely. Um, he uh, was diagnosed again in 2014. He went to the center in 2018. He felt like he was at the end of his, you know, his rope. And so the resources were, were there. They were still new. Um, he got a lot from that place, but it also let, left a lot. They were new. They were overwhelmed. And he came back with a lot of understanding, a lot of tools, but in a whole new place. I mean, he came back right into the same environment, um, same struggles and everything. And there weren't resources like up in Maryland. This is safe bubble that he was in at the center. But here there was no first responder friendly therapist. There was no outpouring of support and love from everybody like he had every single minute at the center. Right. And when you're in that, that protective bubble, if you will, and then you're released back into the world, the world gets in the way. You know, my understanding is I never had to go to the center, but my understanding was, do they, do they take their cell phones from them for a period of time? They used to. Yeah. He would get a couple phone calls a week. I think they've changed that policy, but they used to basically isolate them up there to focus on themselves. And I couldn't imagine like, so, you know, you know, as well as I do. And, and so does my the people that support me. I, this is my center of excellence, my farm that I'm at now. So I get it. I come out here and I get to unplug and I couldn't imagine being in Dustin's shoes and going through all that, being able to find that inner peace while you're there and then coming back and being thrusted into the same exact environment that makes you sick and you can't, you can't escape it. Now I had the pleasure of coming up uh, to work with your organization, the 303 project, which we'll speak about in a little bit. And I got to, um, teach my course on three different days in Cleveland, Tennessee at the fire department. And, you know, we talked about some very hard stuff and we talked about peer support teams and we talked about friends who they want to be there for their friends. But in Dustin's case, he had a problem with alcohol, correct? Absolutely. And that was his crutch. Would, Would that be correct? Yeah, that was his support. And so what happens is when we come back and our friends, when they don't understand that we're using that as a crutch, um, they keep giving us more crutches by taking us out for alcohol and, and drinks and all. And that's, that's kind of what happened to Dustin, right? Yeah. I think he, he came back with tools and a lot of understanding. He dug up a lot of things up there. And so when he came back, 
I think people saw, oh man, he's opened up. He's talking about it. He knows his issues. He's good. And instead he's just uncovered all these layers of hurt and then adding that fuel of alcohol back into that trauma that has now been uncovered. He almost came back with more than he went with. Right. And my understanding is, you know, I hate that I never got to meet Dustin. And because when, when you and I met, you told me you saw a lot of Dustin in me and my characteristics and how I guess I carry myself and how I'm there to help people. And that's exactly who Dustin was. He was the helper. He was the guy that you thought could shoulder everything. And I want you to kind of explain to people who this man was and kind of tell them how heavy it must have gotten for him trying to carry everybody else's weight and, and he couldn't carry his own any longer. Absolutely. Um, when, I, when I talk to people about Dustin and our relationship and how I supported him through it, um, we have two different viewpoints. I, I don't shoulder things. That's just how my mind has been built, but I learned how he shoulders and he uh, personalizes everything that comes at him. So if you and him sit down with a conversation and you tell him about your struggles, your struggles became Dustin's struggles. He wanted to carry that load for you. Um, instead of just helping you take that struggle and dropping it, he wanted to choose to carry it for you. He wanted to protect you from it by he, then it became his issue too. And so then he was only not only carrying his struggles and traumas and issues, but he now carried all the people he dealt with because he wanted to help them. And that's how he thought he could help them by taking it away from him instead of just learning how to release it, I guess. Right. So, and, and you know, what gets me is when you, when you hear people say, well, I didn't, you know, people have told me this, Travis, Travis, you're so strong. I, I thought you could deal with this. And, it, and it's, that's, that couldn't be any further from the truth. I am strong, but even strong men and strong women, they have a weight limit that it's called when you're in the gym, it's your max. And in this case, Dustin got to his max. I got to my max in my case, and I just couldn't handle anymore. And I've learned through the process now that you got to offload some of that weight. And what a lot of people are curious about, Jennifer, and, and you had a unique um, relationship because you're a police officer. You have your own struggles. You've seen your own things, and you understand some of the things that Dustin would go through as opposed to a lot of these spouses. They're not in this world, in, in, the, in the first responder world, I mean, in, in, in our community. So they don't understand. Will you, can you talk about like some of the struggles Dustin had, some of the red flags that you saw, some of the... Um, behavioral characteristics. Now looking back, man, I should have picked up on that, or I already did pick up on it, but either there was no talking to him when he would get in a certain mindset, just from a spouse's point of view, can, can you explain all of that? Sure. Um, I, I'm thankful Dustin. I had a very open communication relationship. Um, when he would struggle through things, we would sit down afterwards when he's in a good place and talk about it. I wanted to be able to, how can I help you? Um, and I learned a lot about what his triggers were, what his traumas were. Um, for him, it was certain places. He would, nightmares were huge for him. Um, and then whether they're realistic replaying something at work or whether it's something his mind had created that was work related. Um, I learned his, his triggers of kids screaming or high pitched screams. Um, that was the first time I saw PTSD manifested in real life with him is we were driving down the road and we we're talking and he just ghosted out. He was driving, but he wasn't there anymore. And I back played in my mind for about 30 seconds. And I realized we just passed a house with kids on a slip and slide. And they're just playing and screaming middle of the summer nights, but his mind, I knew instantly where he was. And I just 
laid my hand on his leg and said, it's okay. It's kids. They're playing a slip and slide. It's okay. Come, you know, talk with me, talk with me. But that was the first time I saw PTSD in real life. And uh, that really started opening my eyes to what to look for and how to have conversations with him. And he would share like what it was that would trigger him. He would have auditory and visual, uh, visual hallucinations of either calls or people he had dealt with from years past. Um, and of course, every day he went to work, there's the risk of adding more trauma to that list he already had. You know who we are, um, like when we're on the job, people see us one way, but behind closed doors, we're a total different. And I was watching, I'm watching the Sopranos for the second time. And you see Tony, the boss of this, this mafia family, you see him leading his, his mafia family in, um, in their environment. But then it also shows, and it started making me think last night, it shows him behind closed doors at his home, laying in bed where he's weak and he's just, he's, he's beat down and he's, um, he's confused and you can see he's scared of what's happening, but he doesn't show that when he puts his clothes on and heads out the door. You know, he carries himself very macho, um, very, I can shoulder everything kind of mindset. And with Dustin, you got to see both sides of that. And when you're talking about these triggers, can you explain like for, for spouses listening and people that really don't understand, I'm sure you, as I, I would think it'd be hard to be married to a, pol- a police officer and be vulnerable, especially with a police officer, because you girls are pretty tough. Right. And right. we're all, we already, Dustin, it was a, it was a kind of a macho dude. And I, I, I would think it would already be hard being vulnerable to a, a, a woman who is, uh, you know, in, in a tough profession like this, but you and I have spoken privately about controlling, um, managing his triggers. And we, we also talked about, it wasn't your responsibility looking back to manage his triggers. That's his responsibility to manage those triggers. But when you're in the fight and you're in the thick of it, it's like all logic goes out the window, correct? Absolutely. And you do anything you can do to help the person who's suffering. But can you talk about those triggers and like, would he have, would he have explosive behavior? Because I did, if something set me off, I, I, I was so quick to jump up motherfucker. And I would, I would say like these fucking kids and they would hear that and I'd walk out. And I didn't realize the damage that I was doing. Was, was he at that point with his stuff? With some things, absolutely. He, um, he was still able, you know, we, from the time he was diagnosed with PTSD, we added two little girls. We decided to add more kids and toddlers and all that stuff that comes with having kids. Um, he was good to, I, he would isolate. It's not good to isolate, but he would, instead of blowing up in front of the kids, he would usually just storm out. And I did. I had to do the double work. If I saw something building, it was, all right, it's nap time. Let's go for a trip. Let's get the kids out of here. I've got to protect anything that might happen while also trying to control and manage these triggers. What can I redirect it? Can I, you know, call somebody? Can I send him somewhere before this gets to a certain point? Um, And it was a constant management as a, how does his voice sound today? Is he having a good day? Is it after shift? What kind of shift did they have? you know, all those different things. Is he going to get to decompress after shift or do you have to go right into something? And how exhausting is that from, from your point of view, from where you sat, you're already a police officer. You're a mom at, at this point of two kids, correct? You had, you hadn't had your um, third at yet? At that point. Okay. Yeah, the third was later on. You're already, and now you're having to come home 
and manage your husband's triggers and his emotions and keep everybody. That's why, you know, that, that episode I recorded, uh, rose petals and eggshells, what are we throwing at our spouse's feet? You never knew if you were getting to walk on rose petals or would you walk on eggshells? And it sounds like you were like my wife, you were walking on eggshells all of the time. And where does the self-care for Jen come in when you're having to care for everybody else? It didn't honestly, um, work became, um, kind of a peaceful time. The kids were at daycare or school. Um, if he was at work, honestly, those were some of the easier days. Cause I had 24 hours of, you know, how's he going to be today? Things like that. He's at work. So work became my breathing room and I still had kids to take care of work to do groceries, cleaning all the things that required in a life. But he was at work. He couldn't release that anger. He couldn't blow up at work. He couldn't do those things. You know, his job couldn't see that side of him in a lot of ways. Um, but he had the freedom at home to be who he needed to be or release the things he held on to for 24, 48 hours. Yeah. So that's perfect. Like you said that because it's like, we live a double life. A lot of times, um, work, I would assume when he would go to work, you knew he was safe. That was his safe spot. You weren't, you weren't worried about the job taking him because, you know, I, I tell people in my class, we're at more risk off duty than we are on duty as first responders. Now it's gotten to that point. So when he would go to work, I would imagine you get to breathe a little bit and he's working 24 hour shifts. Right. And so at least you could come home and be with the kids and not have to, you could sweep up the eggshells for a time. Correct. Absolutely. Um, you know, every third day he'd go to work. Um, and I know he would, we'd talk, he'd have anxiety, things would happen at work, but he was safe there. I felt much safer for him being there. And as things progressed and it got it worse in a lot of ways, um, Can you he was talk taking about off that? more at work. So in 2018, he went to the center, he came back and things got worse for a while, way worse. Was he better he initially able- when he came back and you, you, you like from, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but when he first came back, were you like, Holy shit, my husband's a new man. He's fixed. Or was it, you could kind of see like, maybe this didn't work. Oh, it was way worse when he came back. It, it came crashing down hard. Um, and once he came back, I was eight months pregnant when he came back. So it was welcome back. You're gonna have a little time off work, but our lives about to be changed. Like, are you better? But I realized he wasn't, he actually, I think he came back with an understanding and a label and he felt like I have a label now to these behaviors and these thoughts and these things that are going on. I can now describe it. It's, it's not just me and my actions when in reality, those all tie in together. And so um, one thing the center lacked is they didn't treat his substance abuse. And so when they came back and said, you have PTSD and these other diagnoses, they were all behavioral and trauma related and substance abuse was barely blazed over at the very end. Um, and so he came back with a mindset of my substance abuse isn't my problem. It's my trauma. When in reality, they were absolutely corresponding with one another. So his, so my understanding is this. When you go to the, uh, the Center of Excellence in Maryland, <laughs> they have two different programs. They have behavioral health for mental issues, and then they have alcohol, correct? Alcohol and drug substance. Yeah, and they so have those when, two main programs. And when Dustin went, he had an alcohol problem, but he didn't go into that program. He went into the mental side of it, correct? Correct. So there was no education, no training, no understanding of the crutch that he was using. 
Correct. He, um, it wasn't until probably the week when they gave him a discharge date. Um, they realized his alcohol problem. You know, I got on the phone with his counselor. Finally, they did the family stuff towards the end and basically asked about it, addressed it. And they realized looking back through their notes and his intake that they had made a big oversight. Um, and so they tried to cram some alcohol as bad. It's not going to help you. And so the last week, but at that point he saw the end of the, he had all this, uh, trauma you know exposure and digging it up and these labels and these tools but they were all trauma-based and so right. it's like oh yeah by the way don't drink anymore is kind of how he was sent away so it's like going to the doctor to have surgery on your neck because you got a problem with your neck and they repair your rotator cuff essentially those two run together right but Absolutely, they didn't yeah. fix what was broken. They didn't even treat what was broken. And I'm not, I'm not obviously casting blame, but what I'm saying is this falls down to the responsibility of the individual too. If you mm -hmm. know you have a problem with something, you have to address it. And like I say, we can't go back and change that date and time, but moving forward, we can learn from this. And this is why we have these tough conversations. It's so we can learn from. So if you have a spouse or something like, Hey, I'm going to go get help, but make sure you get help everywhere that you need it. Now I'm sure he knew he had a drinking problem. I'm sure that he knew, man, I probably tie him on a little too much. And while you're there, you know, there's a program for that. But if you don't go into that program, what good are you really doing? You're not getting all of the tools necessary for the maintenance that you need. You can't overhaul an engine with one wrench. You have to have a toolbox full of tools. And it sounds like he went and that's a great thing, but it sounds like he, he, he just didn't get the tools that he needed and would things be differently? I don't know. You know, we'll never know that you, you said right. something that he felt like he was labeled and, and that, that kind of piqued my interest because how did that, like, did he ever talk to you about that? Like he feels like people look at him differently or like it, maybe he thought people thought he was um, not as strong as he used to be because he went away for help. Did he ever mention anything about that? So he was the first one to go. Um, and so when he came back and he had these labels and I think they were able to say like, oh, so you're driving down the road and you see a person that's not there in your passenger seat. Hey, that's abnormal, but that's not uncommon with PTSD. That is actually a symptom or side effect of some of these other things you're dealing with. And he was able to take a sigh of relief and be like, oh, you mean I'm not crazy? It's something we can actually talk through and it's related to my traumas and stuff and the way my brain's wired and all these things that I've gone through. They're like, yeah. And so I think that allowed him to start opening up and he became a big peer advocate. He actually began to talk to other people beyond just, Hey man, what's going on? But let me tell you, there are resources. There are things available. This isn't abnormal to PTSD. This is something that I can correlate back to. You just not, you know, it's just not you. It's me too. He talked to all the rookie schools. He made sure to be there and um, mental health every year for his apartment. He became a big open up. He, they started the peer support um, he wanted to give and help uh, the labels for him. I think just kind of reassured him that he wasn't the only one who's going through things like this. And, you know, it, it made sense as part of PTSD. Such a leader, man. And it's sad because, you know, he's such a leader. He steps up to the plate. He goes to address his issues. He comes back and instead of hiding under a blanket, like in fear of everybody knowing he put it out there. And then he goes and talks to people and he didn't cower down from that. He didn't hide from that. And that's what fucking leaders do. And I hate, like, 
it sucks that I never got to meet this man. I think, and I think about him often. You see the red band that you gave me, the 303 project, it stays on my microphone because I think about him every time I record. I, every single time I look at that before I even hit play and I'm like, all right, what we're doing is making a difference. And it's, um, it's just tough because I know he knew who I was, but I didn't know who he was at the time. And I'm not saying I could have, I could have changed anything, but I wish he would have reached out to me because like you say, he was learning that there were more people like him because you never know the conversations that we could have had and things that could have changed. Um, my, through my private conversations with you and through other firefighters of that community, I know that the alcohol didn't stop once he came back. And uh, ultimately, you know, you, you had a conversation with me one time and you said, I don't know if he'd still be here, but I, I, I have a great feeling that had he have not um, had alcohol in his system that night, that he would have at least been there the rest of that night. Can you talk about, the events leading up to the day that Dustin took his life and as comfortable as you are and talk about any kind of buildup and signs and symptoms that you may have noticed where there were cause cause for concern. And as a spouse, I would just think it's scary because sometimes you can see these things coming. Sometimes you can't, but I have a feeling that, that through everything you were experiencing, you could probably see it coming, but, were we, were we educated at the time to know what we were really facing? Can you talk about that day and that night? Sure. Um, so when he came back from the, the center, he was given a list of resources. And the only thing he could find first responder friendly or knowledgeable was like Atlanta, big places. And he knew he couldn't do a continuous treatment program, driving four hours, things like that once a week. Um, so he tried to locally do some things and just tried to, to self-help, to self counsel himself he thought reach out to the guys uh, and then 2020 hit and covid and it became difficult to find any kind of resource if you wanted to get a counselor you're looking at six weeks eight weeks for your first appointment and six eight weeks for a first responder is way too long to do any kind of thing um you're going to back out and not make it don't worry about it um i don't i won't need it by then um but in this just after covid hit so the late spring early summer of 2020 um he was just, it was unstable. I was, he would do really good. We'd have some great times and then he would crash hard and, you know, go out, have the blowups, have the triggers, have the events. And then we'd have good times. And in the past, the good times were long and then we'd have little episodes of bad times and then they have the good long times. Um, and 2020, those good times and those bad times were coming so close together within days and sometimes hours. And I actually reached out in the beginning of the 2020 summer and to a couple of close friends and even his, um, the person the, that was prescribing him medicine for his PTSD and stuff and said, look, he, if something does not change, Dustin will not make it to the end of the year. He said um, that. I said that to those people. I saw what was happening. I saw how unstable oh. things were. It was just um, a constant roller coaster. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it, by that point, there had been four aborted attempts. There um, was four aborted attempts. So he had, so he had already talked about suicide. He had already showed signs and interest of not living. Yes. So that's important to know because I was talking with someone the other fucking microphone, hang on, the other day, and uh, 
she said something about her brother and how um, he had mentioned suicide and it was just glazed over because they thought maybe he was looking for attention or something. And, and that's actually not the case. It's that's a look into somebody's world who generally is struggling and suffering and wants help and does not know really how to talk about it. So please, I just wanted, I wanted to mention that. So the constant roller coaster, the highs and lows, were the lows getting even lower each time, or was it, you kind of knew what to expect, or was there anything that was really like, that would stop you and like, holy shit, that was more than I expected from him. Does that make sense? Yeah. The highs got higher, the lows got lower. Um, instead of just being this kind of ebb and flow of, oh, that's a good day. That wasn't a great day. It became, you know, what was that? What happened last night or what happened yesterday? Or, you know, and then he realizing it and then having some great days, he would go sober for seven days, 21 days, two weeks. And towards the end of those, when he was actually living life and not, you know, looking through the lens of, you know, constantly looking for a drink or numbing his pain with a drink or being at work. Um, he would actually have some really, really good days. And it worried me because we'd have some really good days. And then two days later, you know, I'm worried about him. I'm going to have to call someone what's going on, you know, and it just became so unstable. And I just knew he couldn't continue. Something had to give either he fixes it or he's going to end it because there's no way he, his mind, his body could continue the constant high and low shift from, like I said, from weekly to daily to sometimes hourly. Now, when you say he, he has to fix it again, that falls on the individual, you, Jennifer, the wife, you can't fix that. All you can do is like we talked about, try to manage triggers, but realistically, if, even if he were still here, still going through that stuff, can you honestly say that you'd still be in a marriage like that this long, putting up with eggshells for that long and managing emotions and doing your career and, and having children and raising them? You know, we don't know. It's exhausting work. And so the responsibility does not fall on the spouse to take care. And, and that's what I see in all these messages. Spouses are exhausted because they're doing everything they can as they should. But at some point, 100% of the responsibility has to, has to fall on the individual. And I, can, I can't imagine how helpless Dustin must have felt because he went to get help. And then he's still experiencing these things. And like you said, it's getting worse for him. And he had some of the tools, but he didn't have all of the tools. But he's back in that environment. And, and you know, as we as first responders, we love to drink. That's, and I tell people all the time, that's the first thing that has to go. I don't care how hard it is. It is the first thing, substance, whatever, whatever substance is the first thing to go. Has to be. Absolutely. I am, um, you know, he would have a, a bad day and we'd talk about it. I wanted to talk about him. Like, what was a trigger? What caused it? What can I help you in the moment? How can I help you? And a lot of times he would say, just love me, just be there. He had to get through it himself. He knew that. And he would talk about after, you know, aborted attempts. He's like, that is absolutely not what I want. I don't want to leave you. You guys are my world. But in that moment, all I can see is the pain I feel and the pain I'm causing. Um, and thankfully all those other times we got through it. Um, but in December of 2020, I finally hit the point where I was exhausted. 
And I truly realized that I can love him and I can support him, but I cannot change him. It has to all come from him. Um, and so I told him, I was like, I love you. I will support you. You need to figure something out, alcohol, sobriety, whatever it is, like go back to the center, you know, whatever options I will love you and support you through them, but something has to change. Um, and then December 11th, that morning he went out and, um, helped some friends and hung out with some friends and ended up at the bar that afternoon, that evening. And I just, I wasn't going to bother bug call anything like that. I let him do his thing. I had three kids at this point, a four month old included to take care of. Uh, He came home drunk that night and he ended up, I wasn't even going to argue. Wasn't even going to argue. Just, you know, he'll go to bed eventually. Uh, And he picked up one of our kids, um, talked to, talked to them and show them Christmas lights, ended up stumbling and falling with that kid, uh, with our daughter. And so while I ran and tended to her, making sure she's okay, I looked at him and his face and I knew that was the night. I mean, the look in his face was just, I knew it right then. Um, I knew it so much. Because of the disappointment he felt when he fell down with the kid and and the reason is you were talking about, he doesn't want to hurt you guys, right? And we talk about mm-hmm. this as first responders or and people that take their lives in general, how we, we, we feel like we're a burden on our family. And the only way to help them so they can be good again is to remove ourselves completely. And that's yeah, why we do, I think, do that. I think he looked in my eyes and I, I mean, I wanted to say a lot of things. I wanted to do a lot of things, but I just picked her up and walked off to take care of her. And I, the look in his face was, I've messed up the last thing that was here for me. There's nothing else left for me. I've just messed it up. I've hurt the people who I promised I'd never hurt. Um, and so he told me he was, he was going to kill himself. I called, we had already created a plan. You know, if something ever happens, call this person. This person is who I'd called in the past. Um, the person that knew him the best. And, and that person is a firefighter. And it's a fellow firefighter. Okay. And I hadn't talked to this person in months. They answered the phone. I told them what was going on. Uh, I think they knew in my voice the seriousness of it. And um, But while I was taking care of our daughter, she was fine. Um, but he went outside, went out back, and took his own life. And he, he shot himself, correct? Correct. And you were, were you on the phone with this other firefighter when that happened, or had you already hung up the phone? Um, I hung up the phone initially and I had text several times, you know, where are you? Are you, I mean, yeah. And he said, uh, go ahead. Oh no, please. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, get the guns and we, we have several guns, police officers, firefighters, you know, we, and so I'd gotten one he had and he got another one. I mean, it was just that night. I knew where his mindset was the alcohol, wasn't letting him see clearly that your daughter's okay. It's fine. You've messed up, but you know, let's get through this. His mind said, I could see it in his eyes. I have messed this up beyond the point of repair. There's nothing left to fix. So you being, so you were inside when he did this, correct? Correct. And he's on the back porch. You heard the gunshot. Correct. Obviously. And what went through your mind right then? Did you know right then? I mean, like, or did you think, Maybe he's drunk and just shooting in the air. I don't know. Um, so I was, I was holding the, the four month old. And so I set her down and ran out. And when I saw him, I, cause I had the hope that was just a shot. 
trying of just, I don't know, but, you know, I, I had the hope that maybe he hadn't done it. But again, that night, I just, with everything in that happened and the way the dominoes fell, I knew the results that night. Jen, tell me how Sadly. quickly, how quickly when he walked outside, did this happen? Was it minutes? Was it seconds? I mean, did, did he just walk out? He knew in his mind and it's done or was he out there for a few and minutes by himself? It was minutes. He was struggling with it. Um, you know, he, he sat there and he talked to himself and he prayed. Um, and he, one of the things he said is I'm so tired of hurting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he, he struggled. It was a struggle for him. It wasn't easy. It wasn't just to walk out there and do it. Uh, like he had said in the past, it's, I don't want to do this. Right. Um, and that's why I say if he hadn't have been drinking that night, would his clear mind have said this, you know, you don't want to do this. You want to take care of your family tomorrow. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, you had a, I couldn't imagine being in your shoes that night because you have three kids at home. you got a husband who's drunk, who's got a pistol in his hand, who doesn't want to live anymore. You don't want your kids to see this. You don't want your kids to even know it's happening. So you're trying to protect them, trying to protect yourself, but you also want to protect him. Like, what do you do? You know, it's, I, I, I think about that and I'm like, oh my goodness, I couldn't imagine how hard that must've been for you. You I mean, I don't think anybody can, um, but it happened. And where do you go from here? Right. How do you pick up the pieces, um, and move forward? And that's what you're doing now. And you're doing a, a, a fantastic job. I'm so proud of you. I've never, I've never told you that but you started the 303 project and I want you to talk about what the 303 project is and what it does. Uh, yeah, I am. Um, my personality, you know, public servant mom is take care of people. Um, I wasn't going to let everything that Dustin was passionate about die with him that night. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to continue the good work that he had done. Um, and so the 303 project just came about, uh, with a couple of us talking, what can we do? Um, and really we wanted to start kind of local of just what can we do locally? Where the, there are no resources, doesn't have resources, but there've got to be some resources. How can we help each other? How can we help with um, administration and, you know, legislative ideas? How can we get support from beyond just families and our coworkers, you know, but everything in, in, involved and we've just picked up people and um, it's, it's spread. It's spread across the state. I have, um, I've started talking to spouses. I realized it was a, uh, a big gap. Um, when he left the center of excellence, I started myself, another uh, fire wife founded the center of excellence support page. And basically for spouses of those who had attended and through our Facebook page, we were connecting with women across the, the country who were like me too. Me too. I have to deal with that too. Yours does that too. You have, you've seen this, you've heard this. And it really realized that this is so common throughout all first responders. And the fire department was very supportive of, you know, Jennifer, what can we do for you? You know, let's continue on with Dustin that they actually had me come in and do the first in-house class they'd had since COVID and pulled in every firefighter at Cleveland and said, let's talk. Jennifer, share your story from the side of a spouse. Um, and so I sat there and 
uh, we've talked, I'm open. I'll talk about it. Here's what I experienced leading up to years, leading up to that night and things like that. And so many of those firefighters came to me or messaged me and said, can you please talk to my wife that I ended up doing a wife class as well. Um, and those wives going, thank you. And then getting calls, Hey, we've set up our, who are three people I can call if I'm in, uh, in an episode or having struggling, who are three people my wife can call? You know, what are some resources? How can we talk? What can I do? And just opening it up that we need to talk about it. This is nothing that, you know, we can hide behind anymore. We're losing more first responders to suicide than, you know, our jobs. So it's time to deal with it. It's so sad, like you say, to know how many homes this is happening in. And when, when we're out from behind those closed doors, the masks and the, and, the, and the smiling faces that first responders and their spouses put on. But when they go back home, sometimes they're going back to a fucking nightmare, you know? And a lot of times with the husband, you don't want anybody to know. So you keep your wife, you make sure that she keeps a tight lip too, because we're so worried about that weakness getting out. We've talked about the peer support, um, especially when I was in Cleveland and, and we're really hammered down on the peer support and some things that when you're on a peer support team, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, you know, if you're on peer support um, and I talk about this in my, my post-traumatic purpose course class a lot that we don't become enablers as much as we want to take our buddies out for drinks, we can't do that. And I think that's imperative. And I can never say that enough because the first thing first responders always want to do when we're having a tough day, well, let's, let's go out and have some beers and talk about it. If you can't talk about it being sober, you shouldn't be talking about it because it's not going to put you in a good place. And it just encourages that. And we got to change that that cycle of um, that old school mentality, like, Hey, let's just go to the bar and have some drinks and talk. There's nothing wrong with having some drinks, but you know, police and firefighters, when we get together, we start telling war stories and all this, and we start reliving some horrible shit. And the problem is we go opposite ways at the end of the night, you know, yep. and in, when you go home, you don't have that buddy to sit there and, and what we call in rank core smoking and joking with you go home to your wife and you go home to your kids and you come stumbling in the door and you drop one of your kids and then you feel horrible for that. And then this is the outcome of it. Um, I'm so proud of y'all Jennifer, because many spouses, when they experience something like this, they shut down, they go into their own depressed state. They go into victimhood. Like how, how am I going to do all of this? Why me? And they, instead of just putting one foot in front of the other, and like you're doing and do something positive with the negative. They live in the negative constantly. And you guys are helping more people than you'll ever know. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. I'm proud to be um, aligned with you now. And we're doing an event together on the 21st of April. Correct. Yep. I'm glad Dennis got I'm those excited. dates. Correct. <laughs> we, we uh, so I got to go to Chattanooga fire department. I'm teaching 22 classes. And then you guys are right up the road from Chattanooga. And Dennis reached out and asked if I wanted to do this event with you. And I've always wanted to do one with you with the spouses in the room. And I just think it would be great because my side is one thing, but your side is a whole nother beast that I don't understand. And a lot of people want to know about. And so I'm excited to, to, to do that with you. And I can't thank you enough for being the voice of all these spouses and, and sharing your experience and letting Dustin's legacy live on 
You know, he, he was a great man in this life and he's a great man after this life. And it's, he's, he's changing lives. Um, and you guys are doing that together. I can't thank you enough for, for coming on today. Is there anything that you want to plug before, before we go? Yeah. Um, honestly, I, as a spouse, I did keep it quiet, especially as a police officer. We're so reserved and quiet, you know, we don't want anything back to, to work or things like that. And it would tarnish his thought at work or, but you're not alone spouses. I mean, every firefighter is experiencing something and anyone who's had traumas and struggles has so many similar things. Um, I wish we had a, a, a spouse's center of excellence. I wish we had a better support system, but right now we just have each other. We're working things like that. Uh, one of the struggles with Dustin was he wanted to get out of it, but you know, he had 22 years and how do you back away from 22 years of serving and things like that? And, you know, Tennessee doesn't recognize PTSD as a work injury. And one of the things, the 303 project and the Tennessee Professional Firefighter Association and uh, other agencies around here are doing is pushing legislation. James Dustin Samples Act is actually going forth this month to the Tennessee government to try and pass this year. And what that's going to do is make PTSD seen as a um, work injury. And we're hoping that will allow firefighters across the state to seek treatment, get help, take some time if they need to, but really, really not only just help those who are in need, but prevent future um, issues from growing. Um, two of the Cleveland firefighters are actually walking from Cleveland to Nashville, February 14th through the 22nd. Um, and they'll end up their walk. 170 miles on the steps to the Capitol to present this. That's, that's an amazing thing, making that push. And again, leaders in action, you guys are, are, are setting the bar and hopefully other States will see this and start recognizing this as well. And we may not see it in our lifetime, but you know what? Somebody one day will benefit from the hard work you guys are putting in. You want to tell them about three or three projects, social media or anything like that? Yeah, so 303 Project, um, 303 was Dustin's badge number. That's where that came from. Um, we've got the, the social media. Um, we'll put plug it into the show notes there with the rest mm-hmm. of your stuff. But Look at you, old pro, um, knowing Instagram, about show notes. Facebook, <laughs> that's it. That's it. Um, but follow us, um, support us. If you're in Tennessee, contact your legislature. Get these things passed. And if, if it passes, it doesn't pass, but just the, the publicity of it, if people go on, if this is such a big deal, if this happened, man, it's happening to me too. I feel that too. I'm not alone. My spouse is not alone. I've got multiple relationships with spouses in the state that I'm following up with and helping them through their situations. It's not isolated to Cleveland. It's not isolated to South Carolina. And it's not isolated to a major traumatic event. It's day in, day out, everything we see and do. How about your, um, don't, did you say you have a spouse page? Uh, that is a, a private page for okay. the spouses of people who have attended the center of excellence. Okay. Um, okay. and so they can request access to that if they've attended. Um, we don't yet have a spouse support page in three or three. We're okay. just growing slowly. Well, good deal. Um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you know, um, a first responder or a spouse, I'd highly recommend you letting their spouse listen to this episode because Jennifer, we could talk for hours upon hours upon hours on this stuff. 
And I, I just think so many spouses will benefit hearing your side of the story and just a, such a small, what in 47 minutes, just a small bit of your story. Um, but it, but it, it's going to help somebody and you know that, and I know that. So, um, again, check out all the, um, aforementioned platforms and social media sites and Jennifer, it was, it was such a pleasure to see your face and talk to you today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on Travis. Anytime girl. We'll talk to you soon.